Warning, the following may cause you to question everything you know about life. Listener discretion is advised. Today we have Judge Albert McKegg here. Not only is he known for his public career, but also as a strong contributor in his church and an up-and-coming author. Today is February 5th, 2018. For the first time in a long time, the uh, Dow Jr. has dropped, causing uh, what economists call a uh, correction. And if you watch the news, uh, it seems as though the world is ending. People are praying. So it's a great day to talk about this book, Praying with Passion, Grounding with Obedience. Good moment. This is Christian Hawkins, co-host of The Culture Shock. We have uh, Matt here, also a co-host. Hello, how's everybody doing out there? And we also have uh, Mr. Albert McKegg, author of Praying with Passion, Grounding with Obedience. Good evening. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, if you could uh, tell us a little bit about your book. Sure. I, uh, I really put the book together as a non-theological approach to prayer. I ended up uh, putting it together as a, a series of lessons originally from my home church. Mm-hmm. And the more I worked on it, the more I felt that the Holy Spirit was leading me to do something with this information that I'd been putting together. And so it is a very basic book. It's a, almost a fundamental approach to things. And uh, I believe it would help people who have either, uh, who are new to the Christian walk and uh, are trying to find their way, or if they've been in their Christian walk a long time and perhaps their prayer life is starting to uh, lose a little of the luster, a little of the enthusiasm or passion, as I call it. Uh, hopefully the book will help. But it's a very basic book, and uh, it's a, I'm just a guy at the local church who believes in the power of the Holy Spirit and the, uh, the truth of the written word of the Bible and the power of prayer. One of the things I loved about the book, and I'm sure we'll get into it more, is, as you kind of just said, the practicality of the book and that um, it— it doesn't read like a seminarian book, and that's a good thing because that means most people actually read it. Um, but there is just a sen- there's a sincere level of practicality to how do you actually do this thing called prayer? Very much like Jesus, you know, teach us how to pray. Well, this this book is a great resource to understand that better. Um, if we could just a little bit, just to help our audience and ourselves to get to know you better, we we talked a little bit off air, but uh, you have a very um, wide background when it comes to church involvement and uh, just being involved in the church family. Can you tell us a little bit about your background growing up in church and kind of what you've done so far? Sure. I grew up as a typical small-town Southern Baptist in Waller, Texas, and uh, went to Sunday school, eventually what small youth group we had. I parted from, from church in my late teen years and uh, then the early Army years, and then I found my way back because God was there all of the time. But as I came back to my home church, I started teaching Sunday school and working on various committees and building committees. I eventually became the Sunday school director at our church and uh, then was elected a deacon. And during that time as a, as a deacon, we lost our senior pastor, so I started uh, managing the prayer meetings. And that's whenever I started creating the notes and the background for what eventually became Praying with Passion. I did that for about seven or eight years. And uh, 
so I, I did that, and then I've also um, played on the praise band as a, as a drummer, worked on the technical side of things, trying to make the sound production as good and pleasing as possible. So I've had a, a pretty varied uh, background in the church and in, enjoy it immensely. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, one thing I wanted to do was just uh, kind of cover the book, uh, really just discuss the, uh, the, the ten chapters of, uh, of the book and, you know, one thing I, I just loved as I'm, I'm reading through each chapter is it, it um, it's like uh, almost like a, an onion. It just goes into a deeper mm-hmm. layer of the of the nature of God and the relationship. Well, and I think that's really the way it was intended because the the first part of a book we talk about the fundamentals of prayer and it's really based upon faith, love, and forgiveness. And we accept faith sort of at face value, and we don't really look at what it is. But in the book, I talk about faith being a decision that we make. It's not uh, some transcendental phenomena that overflows down over you like a fog and poof, you suddenly have faith. Mm -hmm. You make a decision to have faith, similar to having a decision to when you flip the light switch, you know, you're going to have light or you're going to turn the key in the car or push the button to start the car and you're going to have the car started. We have to have some trust, and that starts out by understanding the truth and inerrancy of the Bible. And so we develop our faith, and the faith is uh, hosted by God the Father. Then we talk about the fundamental of love, and if we didn't have Jesus Christ and his infinite love for us where he died on the cross and we attained our salvation, then you know faith would just be uh, just kind of hollow. Mm-hmm. So we have love, and uh, it's very important. That's hosted by the part of the Trinity of Jesus Christ, and then we have forgiveness. And, and I say all of the time, we need, we need to live in a constant state of thankfulness and forgiveness. Yes. And forgiveness has four parts, of course, our forgiveness from God, then our forgiveness from others whenever we've hurt them, then also we have to forgive others uh, uh, that have hurt us, and then finally we have to forgive ourselves. So that's mm-hmm. the basic fundamental whenever we start talking about the fundamentals of prayer in the first part of the book. You know, it's funny you mention that because, uh, you know, thankfulness and forgiveness is, uh, is actually um, what they teach in the, the secular psychology realm uh, as healthy psychology. When you think about dialectical behavioral therapy, for instance, you have your, your core values, and number one is uh, your, your faith or spirituality in a secular perspective. Number two is your family. And number three is the thankfulness and act of forgiveness constantly to always be in a state of giving people the benefit of doubt. Absolutely. And, you know, in my work as a district judge, I hear the the tough cases, the murders, the rapes, the robberies, the serious drug offenses. Mm -hmm. And I see people who have been victims of some of the most horrible of crimes. And whenever I have a chance, and it's not every time, I, I try to let them understand that while they've been hurt and while they're certainly not going to forget what happened to them, they have to have some means of releasing that anger, that bitterness, because that bitterness will cause people to, to become almost brittle. And if you're brittle, you're very subject to being broken. Mm-hmm. And so in a very secular sense, yes, you do have to release those things that have um, been great adversities in your life. But it certainly a, it started out in the, in the Word of the Bible. Yeah. And, that's what makes uh, steel such a strong uh, mixture of metal is uh, its ability to flex, and that's why it's widely used in bridges. That's what uh, what metal uh, allowed for the first bridge across across the Mississippi River, and it was so strong that they had elephants march through it just to prove to people that it was so 
uh, so able to uh, to stay and, and well, not that, break. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. I found it really interesting as I kind of got into your book, and this was a new book for me entirely, just coming into it. And um, the the idea you you focus a lot on the idea of God's love, and that and that being almost a uh, a star log, or however you want to use the analogy, for igniting your passions towards the Lord. And it's it's a really great thing. I, I know in my life personally, I've I've been a kid who's grown up with the passion movement happening with Louis Giglio and those guys, and a lot of fantastic work they do, but. I, I think part of what they do so well is they get people to really recognize and start to kind of grasp with the idea of how much God loves you. You know, many of the songs focus on that topic there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for you, it in, in your book, it's it's the idea of, of you, you will never experience a stirring of affections or a stirring towards passion in the Lord unless you first realize that He does have a passion for you. And it's a, uh, what what kind of prompted you or or uh, really stirred that in your mind to kind of make that connection to kind of bring that forward in prayer. I was drifting. Uh, I mean, I was a solid rock Christian. I knew all the right words. I was reading all the right books and doing all the right things. But my own life had become somewhat cold. Mm-hmm. And, yes, I prayed, but it was kind of a rote prayer. I had my list that I would get out, and I'd work my list. And uh, I knew that there was something that was missing, and mm-hmm. I just couldn't seem to grasp it. And so I, I literally started reading the Bible more uh, and started looking into what the Bible was saying uh, and more than just the words, but the intent behind it, the emotion behind it. And uh, just through a, a series of devotionals and prayer and time, it came to me that that Jesus Christ paid that ultimate price. And we look at the movie like The Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson so several years back. Mm-hmm. And things like that, even though it's now kind of an older movie, when you see what our Lord was willing to go through, and the sacrifice that he was willing to make on the physical sense, it starts to really come home to you how much he loves you. And then if you've ever been in a a real crisis situation in your life, when you really feel separated from either your friends and loved ones or family, or even if you feel separated from from God, that hollowness, that that dark emptiness is just so devastating. Mm -hmm. And so... There's only one thing that will close that gap, and that's the love of Jesus Christ. And that just, it came to me over a, a, a bit of time. And that's why I spend so much time in the book talking about God's love for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's um, actually uh, just uh, recently heard that Passion of a Christ is uh, working on a sequel. Uh, and they're actually uh, uh, going to be using the same stars. In fact, uh, Jim. Uh, Cavazel, who played Jesus, uh, was actually one of my favorite actors. Uh, he played in uh, Person of Interest, uh, one of my all-time favorite TV shows. I, I remember uh, Jim's interview recently talking about being uh, in the sequel. It's refreshing because his t- testimony actually ref- uh, reminds me a lot of, uh, of your book, talking about the, uh, the passion and... Uh, and, and something um, I've learned as I've uh, become a truer Baptist is, uh, is to start to uh, trying to remove emotion from my, um, my walk with Christ. And reading your book uh, has, has showed me that that's not exactly the, the proper way to find discipline, is to remove emotion. You, you actually do need to rely somewhat on emotion. In the seven-part seminar that I teach... Uh, based upon this book, part three is praying the heart of God. And one of the things that I say is that 
it, it's not unholy to be emotional, to be passionate. Whenever you look into a group of people that are listening to some wonderful music, I, you know, for instance, I listen to Urban Renewal and Vertical Worship, Jesus mm-hmm. Culture, Brian and Katie Torwalt. Whenever you, you're listening to that passion coming out of groups out of the Bethel Church, how can you not be moved emotionally? Yeah. And, and that becomes part of your prayer life the music life that we have. And then whenever God's word is being taught and the true word of God is coming from the pulpits or teachers or whatever you're reading, Mm -hmm. how can you not be moved uh, to what's going on right there? And I say that, um, you know, my my set list on my uh, Spotify is probably a little different than most 68-year-olds, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) David Crowder, for instance, where you were talking about the passion movement, absolutely. Uh, But uh, David Crowder comes in on that stuff. Of course, Louis Giglio that organized Mm -hmm. all of the passion things. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you look at the groups right there, you see young people being passionate, and there's nothing unholy about that. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful and godly because mm-hmm. in the book of Revelation, whenever you're talking about the church of Laodicea, whenever the Lord is talking to John and he says, Laodicea, you're neither cold nor hot, I spit you out. Yeah. Christ yeah. is not looking for lukewarm Christians. He's not looking for absolutely. cold-hearted Christians. He's looking for people with fire, and fire produces heat, and heat mm-hmm. is passionate. Yeah. Well, I recently read a book by Tom Rainer, you know, the president of Lifeway, and he does a book about millennials, and he talks about the idea, and I'm probably going to misquote it, so I'm not going to try to directly quote it, but the, just the idea that um, to to grasp a millennial in, in the church and understand and to get them involved and passionate about it, uh, there does need to be this connection with a passion or a thing that drives them. Uh, and, and to a point there, uh, a lot of times we do miss that sometimes in the church. Our pastor recently spoke about this as well, that... Um, he used the analogy of, I'm sure many pastors use about, uh, their wife. And if you were just to go to your wife and to give her you know, a big thing of flowers on Valentine's day and she's excited for you, you say, oh, you know, just do my duty. That's all it was. <laughs> it's not going to end well for you. And, uh, and it's the same thing with the church there, there, there obviously needs to be a, a level and a space to, to intellectually and, uh, rashly engage scripture, engage the Lord. And he's, and he's comfortable with that. But there is just as much that needs to be a space and a, and a level that combines the idea of passionately worshiping after him and following him with your heart as well. So I, uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I actually had a, a similar uh, scenario happen to me in, uh, when I was going to a middle school dance uh, for Valentine's Day. Um, there was a, um, a girl that uh, had a crush on me. We were just friends, and I, I asked her to the dance. And she asked me, well, it was so nice of you to ask me. Why did you ask me? And I said... Well, I just felt obligated, and she didn't go to the dance with me. I was so I was so confused and, and this upset. This is explaining so much about your dating life right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was so confused uh, as to you know why she didn't find this so kind. But it's it, it's just you know as we say, it, it shouldn't be. Love isn't an act of obligation. It's it's doing what you don't have to, and and that's. And, and that's exactly, you know, the nature of God. That's why he created us with the ability to choose or to not choose him. Absolutely. You know, there's one of the songs we were talking about groups just a minute ago. Kim Walker-Smith has a, a, one of her songs, and she says, Love has a name, and the name is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we really start associating that, then we can develop that closeness. Because whenever you're in love... I mean, I've been around for a while. I've got a wife of 47 years. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, two millennial kids. 
by the way. Well, I guess 32 and 34 doesn't quite. Borderline. They're (laughs) close. But uh, whenever you you see what what you're talking about here with love has a name, uh, it starts being meaningful to you because you have to have that passion. If you're in love and you have no passion, you're not really in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you, you have passion in your life with our Lord and with, uh, with his works and with what's going on in the kingdom. Yeah, you know, um, people that know me know I'm very critical of charismatics, especially mainstream charismatic churches, uh, including some of the ones you've mentioned. And uh, I can fault them on a lot of things, but uh, on, on worship is, is one thing that I feel most charismatics uh, do right. I think you're right. And and one of the things that I don't say in the book necessarily, but I really believe that the praise and worship that we have is an extension of our prayer life whenever we're truly involved in it. Yeah, exactly. Because what are we doing but to, but to giving thanks to God and mm-hmm. to acknowledging God and His holiness and to uh, worshiping our Lord Jesus and acknowledging what He's done for us. If you listen to most of the modern worship songs, well, even going all the way back to to the old hymns. That's what it does. It, mm-hmm. it embraces that approach to God. And and something I really appreciate uh, that was, I believe, in uh, chapter 1 and 2, you were discussing about the importance of uh, taking time to, to read Scripture as, uh, mm-hmm. as part of uh, your prayer life. Yeah, I'd say one of the great points of the book is is the idea of, of, of balancing that, you know, prayer prayer is something, and prayer is obviously something that uh, we can sometimes just do as a standalone thing towards God, and it can become that where we uh, we may not necessarily be praying God's word; we're just kind of praying what we feel and what we or we're thinking. And we'll probably get into that more a little bit here, but I, I, I do I, I really appreciate um, as you were spelling it out, having the balance of Bible intake with your prayer to help you really understand. Well, if you're praying, you're you're trying to seek God's will at the end of the day. And you're going to find God's will, his response to you in that matter, most likely through the Bible and just the importance of that. I, I wanted to go to chapter two with your idea of faith. And I, I appreciate it. Faith is one of those things that, like you say in the book, is a, is a question that we're still going to ask even after we get done reading this chapter because it is sometimes a hard thing to grasp at. But uh, just if you don't mind, talk through your understanding a little bit of faith and your approach to it and how do you even define faith in your words, your terms. Mm-hmm. Faith is knowing in your heart or in your head that there will be certain truths. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you were talking about millennials, and I understand one of the the great things about the millennials uh, as a whole, and I realize it's kind of a broad statement, but the millennials seek truth. They want things that are true, not just because somebody said that they are, but because they are true in their own lives and because they make a truthful consequence in their lives Mm -hmm. and something they can relate to. It's almost tangible. And in faith in uh, too many of our lives is intangible. But I believe faith is very tangible. Faith is something that while you can't lay it out on the table and look at it, you can certainly see the results of it. You know, you use the old analogy of the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the trees move. You can see the sails of a boat billow. Yeah. You can't see faith as it's there, but you see the fruit of faith. You see what happens from faith. You see people acting in faith and doing things in faith and speaking to others in faith. Mm-hmm. And even in the book, we talk about healing and demonic activity. Those are all based on having faith. So mm-hmm. whenever I look at what the faith is to me, and if I had to define it, I would say it's a tangible relationship that I have with reality and the reality of spiritual power. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's what faith is to me. And it is a decision that I make to have faith and to grasp the spiritual power and to take action with the spiritual power. Yeah. I think it was uh, last fall, I, I listened to uh, Timothy Atik, who's the director at Breakaway now in College Station, awesome college ministry there. But he was talking a little bit about just worldview, and it was kind of the general theme of the, of the semester, and saying that um, a proper worldview is one that makes sense of the world around you. And so much so with faith as well, too, is that uh, one of the things that kind of, I guess, grinds at me a little bit sometimes in, in, a, in a church saying, and everybody does this at some point, is part of maturing, is that, uh, well, faith is just, I have it. And, you know, I I, I believe the Bible is true because I'm supposed to believe the Bible is true and it's because God said so. And if we're not careful, we get into these arguments that are just circular reasoning of not really having a logical reason why you have faith. And so I, I and I think you kind of hit, at least I got the gist of this as I was reading through your book, is that um, th- there is a necessity to to understand and to really rationally think about these these claims that you know, even Jesus makes at times that um, if I'm going to have faith in them, they have to at least be able to stand up to scrutiny at some level. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. Yeah. One of my favorite parts is uh, about midway through the chapter on on uh, prayer through faith was uh, talking about uh, when Jesus uh, said that if you have uh, enough faith, even at the amount of uh, what would fill a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. And uh, it actually reminded me of uh, an analogy once I heard um, where they uh, compared that um, mustard seed of faith to a lump of coal or even to a, uh, a lump of uh, uranium, uh, you know, talking about the power of, uh, of a, a lump of coal is, uh, you know, would, would probably cause, you know, maybe 30 minutes of light, whereas a lump of uranium would be uh, 10 years of light, whereas a mustard seed of faith would create the sun. <laughs> well, you know, the mustard seed is a living thing. Mm-hmm. And, and here's, we'll just carry it for in our context here. You plant that mustard seed and it grows. It produces more mustard seeds. Before long, you have a field of mustard and then it produces this, a valley of mustard seeds. Mm-hmm. And so the thing about faith, faith grows like that as well. The coal never grows. It is reduced by its use. Uranium never grows. It's reduced by its use. But the mustard seed, being a living thing, faith being a living thing, grows with its use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, just the idea of, of not having a stagnant faith to go with that analogy of growing. You talked about the idea of focus and growth being in, being crucial to your faith and that right. um, with that same analogy there, if, if you don't continue to grow your faith, your faith will eventually kind of shrivel. You may walk away from your faith at some point because it hasn't grown. And so uh, just again, go into the idea that faith is not just something that you just, that you only receive from God. It's something that you continue to, to work with and to grow with. Um, you, you talk about in that same chapter, I believe, the idea of, of strengthening your faith through the activity of work. You use the workout analogy. Um, Dr. Robert Jeffers, the pastor at FBC Dallas, he, in one of his books, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the title of it now, but it's the idea of how do you know. Uh, he talks about that a person's faith is directly portion, proportional to a person's doubts, and that the more you doubt, the more you struggle with these big concepts of your faith, the more it's going to grow. And just um, You know, one of the things in Scripture it says, you have your measure of faith. Mm-hmm. I can't give you the address of that, but in our salvation, we have the measure of faith. Yeah. 
we do have that faith, but in the other hand, we have this this bundle of doubt and unbelief over here. Mm-hmm. And whenever we're trying to deal with our our five senses of, you know, touch, taste, smell, sight, you know, things like that, we're dealing with this tangible thing over here. We build up the unbelief. We still have our faith over here, but our unbelief gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And so suddenly, our unbelief is outweighing our faith over here, and we're starting to act more on our unbelief than we are on our faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what the challenge then becomes is how do we reduce that unbelief over here? And here I am sitting on a radio waving my hands around, but you know that's uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah. You 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 quash the unbelief and you live on the faith side of it, and it is a conscious decision. Yeah, I mean it's it's very much a parallel to just the the idea of salvation in itself is that you know there is the justification. You as soon as you accept, you are, you are saved through, thoroughly through Christ. Um, but there is still that sanctification aspect of it that you're going to continue to grow and strengthen and mature and, and you know, to use the skit guys, you know, be chiseled away at by God. <laughs> um, it, it's, 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 it's a beautiful picture. I think it goes towards the idea of prayers that um, prayer is a journey is just as much as any part of your faith is. And of course, you're going to start off and be the worst prayer in the world in your mind because you, you might actually be because you've never done it before. Um, but if you continue to stir your affections towards the Lord, continue to, to ignite that passion in you, it's going to propel you towards a, a prayer life that's going to grow and develop. And as you said there, it's, it's going to impact even your worship as a, of the Lord because of that time you spend with him, stirring affections with him. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. Discipleship class I took as a teenager, they... They um, encouraged us to take uh, 30 minutes of quiet time each day with God. And I'm, I always, you know, when I started uh, uh, implicating that, I'm like, well, I, I try to keep it quiet. and But, you know, I start talking to God, and sometimes he's talking back, and, it, you know, it's just not very quiet. <laughs> and that's a good thing. In Chapter 3, you start getting into the idea of, and this may be the, the part that kind of becomes tricky for some people, but just the idea of God speaking back to you through prayer. And uh, I, I, I always joke with this sometimes. We have, I have people in my life who tell me all the time that, you know, every day it seems like God is speaking to them in a very real and tangible way. And I sit there and I say, well, I can probably count on my hand two or three times I think I've audibly heard the Lord. And I'm still not even totally sure that it was actually Him in those moments. But mm-hmm. um, how, when you kind of dive into that idea of, of hearing the Lord speak, and then there's an obviously an idea that it's a, it's a two-way conversation like any normal conversation. It's a reflection of it. Um, where do you land or how do you find yourself on that idea? Well, it, it has to be based upon what we read in the Bible. Of course. Because that is God speaking to us. That is our basic instructions before leaving earth. That is the Bible. <laughs> and uh, if we're not reading that, if we're not hearing from God every day through that, then we're not going to understand some of those nuances in our prayer life. But it goes beyond that. We talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, the movement of the Holy Spirit's not talked about a lot in, in some of the mainstream churches, particularly Baptists. And I can talk about Baptists because I am one. <laughs> but uh, we don't talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit a lot. But whenever we're in tune with the Bible, and whenever we've cleaned up our life, we've gotten the sin out of our life, and we have a good relationship and fellowship with God, then the Holy Spirit's conversations back to us. He speaks the true word of God that comes back to us. And whenever we're having that prayer time, we may not hear the voice like Paul heard on the, on the road. And frankly, if most people did, they would probably make a new window in the wall as they ran through it. <laughs> uh, we just we don't hear that tangible voice. Yeah. But whenever we're, we're talking to a friend and we, 
we have this feeling down in our in our gut, if you want to call it that, that they need something and they need a prayer or they need a touch or they need a hand or they need help. That's in all likelihood the Holy Spirit talking. And whenever we're in tune with the, the Bible and seeing what is said about the Holy Spirit as our truth teller, our comforter, our counselor, then we can start being more in tune with what the Holy Spirit is saying. And that is God speaking to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he's going to write on the wall. Uh, we're not dealing with you know, the book of Daniel here where Nebuchadnezzar is seeing the handwriting on the wall. Mm-hmm. God can do that. Uh, when he does that, it'll probably cause me to faint flat out on the floor. <laughs> but I do uh, believe that God speaks to us very clearly, and it is in our conscience, and uh, that's how we understand. Whenever we're in that fellowship and relationship that we're supposed to be, we will get that feedback on a constant basis. Yeah, absolutely. I, I and I love kind of to your point there that it it it, it is so often sometimes an, an internal dialogue or internal more feeling than actual conversation i'm reading a book now called imagine heaven by uh, i forget the guy's name but it's, it's it deals a lot with the idea of near-death experiences and the things that go on um and it, it talks about that most of these people that have these experiences when they get to this this realm i guess on just on the outside of heaven that uh conversation is not the same as it is mouth person to person with mouths moving and words coming out it's it almost seems more like an internal dialogue between two souls going on and that's when I've experienced that, like you, spe- you know, said, the Holy Spirit uh, maybe kind of pushing and directing you. It, it is more of a, an internal feeling that sometimes takes the form of a, an internal model, an internal dialogue, but more often not just a feeling. Um, I really enjoyed the fact that you're in th- you threw in the, the verse from 1 John 4, 1, you know, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world and just, again, uh, just the part that I just loved about this book is that uh, it is it is balanced by the idea that um, don't just listen to your heart because you know, the Bible says the heart is a wicked wicked thing, uh, but balance it with the idea that it's going to be it's going to be in agreement with God's word. Absolutely, you know the last Star Wars movie out there, and you you see the the young Jedi as he grows and develops, and he starts following his heart as opposed to what he should in the code. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I you know I'm not one of those who says well that the Force is an analogy of <clears throat> the Holy Spirit working in this, but it, it does make a good and exa- good example. People who only follow their heart without understanding the written instructions of the Bible can find themselves off the path. Yeah. Our hearts do lead us astray because, goodness gracious, our hearts lead us into all kinds of things that are, are not biblical, not righteous, yeah. not correct. Even with intense sincerity, we can, we can fully convince ourselves that we are, we are, we're trying to follow the will of God because we just feel this very distinct push in our life. but. How often does that lead somebody astray? And you think about these false prophets that it talks about in First John. I don't imagine they start off saying, I really want to deceive every single person I can. And they probably just got this feeling that this is where the Lord's leading me. This is Gnosticism. These are different heresies of the history of the church. And it's just people who did not balance what they were feeling with what the Lord says. Perfect, Matt. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's so many times the, that... Um, you know, I can I can clearly see the difference between following God's will and following my heart, mm-hmm. and uh, this brings me to you know one of the uh, topics that Dr. John Piper uh, coined was uh, Christian hedonism, um, where you know I, I'm going to say that uh, following your heart 
is going to be that that id you know it's going to be your your deepest darkest desire but you know following your desires isn't going to exactly fulfill you in in a way that you'll be happy um you know i like uh food a lot you know mm -hmm. but if i am constantly filling <laughs> mexican food you know that's uh not going to make me happy. Uh, my, my desire is to actually exercise and, and be healthy. That's going to, to bring me to happiness. And, and, and uh, you know, I love Dr. John Piper's, uh, you know, coined term here, Christian hedonism, uh, because doing God's will, when you become a true Christian, God's will becomes your will. Piper was talking about here is, uh, you know, so many churches try to preach uh, that that uh, fun is sin, but doing God's will is fun. Uh, you know, Nehemiah went through uh, quite a hard, quite a bit of hardship, but I bet he probably enjoyed what he did for for Israel, for Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall. Sure, I. I would say that... Uh, Job well done, seeing, mm -hmm. seeing the project to completion. Yeah. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm -hmm. You think, well, I don't want to give up all of these fun things that I'm doing right now. And, and I understand that. If you never changed, if you stayed the same that you, you were in that particular point in your life where those were the fun things of life, and you never changed, then of course you wouldn't. But then you have not yet transformed your mind yourself by the renewing of your mind. When you renew your mind, your things change. Just as things that make a 15-year-old happy may not make a 55-year-old happy, uh, or vice versa, we renew ourselves by the renewing of our mind. And that's really what it talks about. Our, our desires change. And that close relationship that we get with God through prayer will cause us to, to change. And I know we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves on the where that is in the progression of the book. But that is so important that we understand that, that we grow and develop a step at a time. And as we do that, then our desires change and those things that are important to us change. Mm -hmm. yeah. With the idea of, um, of being transformed in that, it, it is a very relational thing. I, I'm sure you said 47 years of marriage now. Right. So I, I am, I'm just on the precipice of marriage. I'm engaged and we've been engaged for... Oh gosh, over a year now, so it's a long, long road to hold. But uh, with my fiance Victoria, I I even noticed in our relationship, um, because my passion is to her, how much my life has changed and been transformed because of my interactions with her. I, I can look very clearly back on you know me five, six years ago in ministry and um, would say probably very strong headed, probably very stubborn. That's probably just the fact that I was a young dumb kid. But even part of that, I would say, goes towards my being with her and that a part of our relationship has helped me to kind of soften out a little bit. And, calm. and I think the same thing with the Lord, too, is that uh, it, it is about having a genuine relationship. I mean, we're, we're getting ready to do, I'm a you know, youth pastor here, we're getting ready to do a weekend of, of D-Now, and the, the theme of it is having an authentic relationship. And just as you said there, uh, you should experience some type of change in your life by following Christ and being in relationship with Christ. It's just the very nature of the, of the process there. And if you haven't, if you've never experienced that, then maybe there's cause for concern about the actual relationship there. I agree. I mean, there, there's a lot of people that, I'm, that we've heard the expression, they have their fire insurance, they had a, yeah. the saving relationship at, at a point in time, but they've never developed, they've never carried it forward. Um, but you can take the same 
analogy and, and put it in the physical sense. You take a 20-year-old who's, who's just naturally in good shape, but if you never exercise and you eat the wrong stuff, by the time you're 40, you don't look so good. <laughs> and so if your faith is the same way, you may have this uh, original relationship with Jesus Christ, but if it never grows, you know, in 20 or 30 or 40 years, it's probably going to look just the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and uh, on, on that point that, uh, you know, that faith has to grow, I, um, you know, it's, it, it's something that, that you have to put uh, quite a bit of work into. You know, uh, God does his part, uh, you know, time and time and time over. But if you don't take that time to uh, spend time with God, then he's not going to force you. And just like a, just like a relationship here on earth, if, if you don't put uh, time into the, the friendships here, then they'll disappear. Absolutely. And it's very much a good analogy there, Christian. Whenever you've got a relationship here, uh, I know you guys haven't been out of high school all that long or college maybe. Uh, but, for instance, whenever I was in the in the military, and that was goes back a few years, I developed some friendships there. And we nurture those friendships on a constant basis, even though I don't see them physically for years at a time. And so you, you do have to nurture that relationship, and you have to consciously keep it going, or it will go away, and it'll be lost to you. I, I think there's many Christians that are out there with their, their seats in the seats out in the sanctuary that have lost that relationship and they're just going through the motions because they think they should, but they've, they've not maintained that energy of the relationship. Right. I think to kind of go back to your, your analogy of you know, high school friends and college friends that you, you over time you just you grow away from, you have to work to keep them, to keep them connected. I, I think to use what you just said there, Facebook is one of those things that uh, has created this, um, this pseudo connection for a lot of people and that I I have many of my high school friends that I follow on Facebook and I see and I see the fact that they've been married and have little kids that are adorable and and go on these trips and I think oh yeah I know what Cody's doing or something like that I know what Fred's doing Um, but I really don't and I really have no idea what their heart is like I have no idea what what their dreams and affections are Um, and to go back to the church I think so often that is that is the the uh, the diagnosis of the church as well too that yeah, I heard a sermon last Sunday, and I've I've sang a few songs last Sunday too. But if you really pressed me on it, I probably don't know much about what the Lord's wanting to do in this world and wanting to grow in. And we have this, you know, social media condition in the church as well too. A lot of a lot of followers and lookers, but no actual connection. You know, I'm gonna, I'm going to hop right in here and use that as a as kind of a commentary when young people look at people my age or, or, you know, 40s and 50s and 60-year-olds and, and even older, and they watch them, and they should watch them, and they're watching them in church, and they're just stone-faced. There's no emotion. There's no, no enthusiasm. They go through the motions. And I'm not saying this is universal, but there's, there's enough of us out there that are having a little bit of gray on the temples. I would encourage the young people not to use that as examples. That is not the example that Christ gave us. That is not the, the way that Christ expects his church to behave. He expects his church to be active and alive with the blood pumping and out doing things, not just uh, being a stone monument sitting in the pews. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that people are, are giving to their church would be their dues that they pay in the way of a tithe or an offering. 
and maybe they're mm-hmm. working on a committee, but it's really not anything other than what they think they should do, an obligation. Yeah. I think about um, just uh, using the, and I know we're kind of going on a tangent here, but that's okay. Um, I even see this a little bit with worship sometimes in that, and we know we've talked a lot about contemporary worship here, and I, I probably would, if you ask people, I'd probably get a, a rap for not liking um, um, hymns and traditional songs and that, that. And it's not that I don't like them. I think there's a lot of beauty there. I think there, the Lord has really, truly blessed some people throughout history with some beautiful songs. I mean, how could you not love Amazing Grace or In Christ Alone and these, these great anthems of the church? But to go to your point there, I think the Lord is still doing a phenomenal work. And I think guys like David Crowder and Chris Tomlin and vertical worship, I think the Lord is truly blessing them by allowing them to seek him and to write these songs. And I think it would be criminal on our part not to encourage that and not to say, look, God is still doing new things and we can still continue to expand and push on our presumptions of him. Um, and so it really hurts me sometimes when I see that um, some churches for, for sake of, I would say, comfort and not willing to change, do not accept new mer- new worship because of that. And it's just it's a discredit to what God's doing, I think. It really is. Now, I, I've been to um, Second Baptist Church visiting Dr. Young's church, the West Campus, particularly over there near the Katy area. Mm-hmm. And whenever you see what they're doing with hymns, with the, the enthusiasm that they have and the feeling that they have, those hymns can move you. Yeah. Um, and I really say that doing first-class work for God at any level is what you're supposed to do. But when you're doing Absolutely. second-class work for God, and your second-class work is is simply you're doing things because you've always done it that way, mm-hmm. then, yeah, you're, you're shortchanging God in that. But I certainly agree with what you're saying, that there is so much more going on. God is a God of growth and change. He's not a God of the status quo, just mm-hmm. keep things the way they are. In my seminar, I use the a slide up there, a pop a slide up, and it says, Church Rule 1, change is bad. And then the next slide says, Rule 2, see Rule 1. <laughs> people don't like change. Yeah. And uh, in, in my generation and the generation right behind me and ahead of me, are, are advocates of let's not change. We've never, it's been good enough. We can always do. There is change afoot, and we need to embrace that change, not just for the sake of change, but for the sake of God. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I am um, I I come from having done a lot of just regular corporate work, and I you know worked in insurance. I worked in sales, and so uh, a lot of times when I approach the church, of still being fairly new, of being a, a staff member. Um, I approach it with the idea of innovation is good. Um, getting better is what we need to be striving for. And like you just said, uh, if you're not willing to do excellence in all that you do, I don't want you here, honestly. It's something that sounds very harsh. That's why I had to kind of back it off a little bit. Again, Victoria softened me as I get older. Um, but I do, I, I, I look at it so much that um, we have to be willing to be excellent in what we do for the Lord. Not just willing to be, but passionate towards being that because you know, I, 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 I linking it back to, I was selling insurance for houses and cars and life insurance. Those are all fine and dandy things. But now my job is to get people to want to glorify and worship the Lord. If that's my job, and if I sold insurance with a lot of passion and drive to someone to see, see if I might be covered and protected, how much more so should I be just working tirelessly 
to make sure people are willing to pursue the Lord. Absolutely. Well, you, you talk about uh, your job in education right here. If you were still using a big chief tablet and a number two lead pencil, and that was your, your educational tools, whenever you go into any school, any corporate office, any business, and you've got a multimedia presentation going on, you've got electronics mm-hmm. and digital world out there and video screens, mm-hmm. and, and you're not using those things now to teach, you're not going to get the message across. No matter how strong the word might be, no matter how strong the message is, you've got yeah. to have the contemporary medium that uh, is going to re- that people will relate to. Yeah, right, absolutely. We're not Amish, and, and I have nothing against the Amish people, but frankly, the, the Amish are too modern if you want to con- compare them to two thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, to contribute to the to that point, a lot of companies will not take in unpaid interns because since they're not getting paid, they uh, do mediocre work. Mm. And, it, and it, uh, in some ways, volunteers uh, sometimes take on that same attitude that, you know, since I'm not being paid and this is just volunteer work, then, you know, I, I don't have to put a lot into it. You know, I don't have to give my all. And, uh, you know, one thing I, I love about uh, Christian volunteers is uh, that, you know, when, when impactful ministry is taking place, there is a lot of Christian volunteers pouring their entire life into that, into that work. Sure. And it doesn't matter that they're not getting paid doing it, you know. (laughs) People on the sound team, people on the tech team, people that are ushers at the door handling the parking lot, people that are teaching Sunday school, making refreshments and coffee and cleaning up afterwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can all do do all of that with a a cheerful expression and because you're, you're part of the kingdom. Yeah, and do it to, do it to the glory of the Lord too. Absolutely. Think about um, you know recently with, with Hurricane Harvey and the disaster relief, and you know the SBC has been uh, tremendous in their efforts. To where I, I was able to do a little bit, and of course that's that's dear to me because a lot of my hometown was hurt by Hurricane Harvey and Beaumont. Um, but we had people from Southern Illinois coming, and and golly, like, retired guys just work, and they mm-hmm. do it to to your point there. They do it because they're doing it for the glory of the Lord, not mm-hmm. for themselves. I, when I was working at one store. My uh, my boss would always say, kind of to your point about being unpaid and doing mediocre work or things like that. He always get on to me about like wanting to work a little bit longer or something like that. He says, well, "I'm not paying you, so I don't want you to become um, uh, feeling like you're owed something or something, or just kind of this idea that you develop this mentality of I'm owed, so I can slack off." And I said, "That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I'm I'm here working because you you've asked me to work and I want to work well, um, and I don't understand this culture of." Well, I can just kind of slack all these different things. Do just enough. Yeah. Yeah, a popular quote I hear about um, uh, people's relationship with God is, uh, uh, I love God because he loves me. And uh, I always found that so shallow. Mm -hmm. Um, But because there there needs to be more to it. Um, Mm -hmm. I love love God even though I don't have to. Uh, He... He... He created me, but doesn't feel that I owe him something for that. He created me, and I love him because of so many different reasons, uh, because of all the amazing things that he does for others and and for me. And it's the same way with, uh, you know, a relationship with your parents. You know, you could... Uh, You you feel obligated to love them because they, they brought you into this world. Um, 
But if you were to just express to them that I, I love you because I'm obligated to, uh, it's not going to go well. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, and, you know, we, as much as we've, we've kind of hinted towards people who maybe lack passion or don't strive for the Lord. And the other end of that is the people who um, do feel this certain sense of deep obligation, uh, but not in a not in a graceful sense, but more in a sense of, of, uh, of a pay of a debt mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. the Lord. And so they, they work, have a sense of guilt and, and unworthiness. And it's, and that's the other dangerous side of, of the spectrum here is right. that, I mean, the truth is that you, like you said, you work from a center of grace and saying, you know, God has done so much for me that I, I am so undeserving of, and I can never repay him. And that's, that's foolish me to even think about that. But yet, because I'm so amazed at this love, it just propels me to want to work for, to want to work after what He's calling me to do, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think that plays into exactly what I was trying to bring out in the book about having the relationship with God, mm-hmm. and whenever you have that relationship, you will want fellowship. Yeah. The relationship relationship means you know Him and you know His heart. The fellowship is that you spend time with God and doing things for God, just like you would your fiance. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I want to get to a part of the book that I think is really good. That's, that's terrible. All the book is really good. Um, but a part that I found interesting is just getting to the idea of answered prayers and and even specifically the idea of healing in, in your prayers. And, um, I really like, again, just going back to the idea that you could, you combined, uh, one, a sense of understanding that, well, God is capable of healing my my needs, and he is capable of answering my prayers, but also, too, balancing that with biblical understanding of, well, how do you even approach that in life? Because um, to, to really kind of push back to the very beginning of what we should talk about this this thing is that you have a, you have a little story at the beginning of your book of kind of what the genesis of this book was, and it was, to, I don't want to steal the whole story from it, but the idea that you had, I think in two weeks' time, you had one person have a stroke, and I guess the Sunday school hour, the Bible study hour, uh, and you say that, you know, well, we addressed the situation, we called 911, and we got the person to a safe location, and then we kind of went on with business as usual. And then the very next week, you have another situation that I think was a little bit different, but a similar thing. Uh, and again, we just kind of went on with business as usual. We took care of the situation, and you say that, you know, why why did none of us stop and want to pray for this situation? And so, uh, would you, if you could just kind of, maybe put a little more color to that story and then kind of going to that question of um, of just the idea of answered prayers and the idea of, of understanding to pursue the Lord for answered prayers and also understanding that he does yeah. answer prayers but doesn't always look the way we want it to. Well, first, I don't <clears> think... <throat> I gave up believing in coincidence a long time ago, particularly in relation to anything <laughs> about God. Uh, nothing surprises God. He's never surprised. At anything. Gee whiz, McKeg, I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> he never says that. And in the situation of these two ladies, uh, both fine church-going uh, ladies, and as they this happened to them, and I was present, I knew what was going on, it just simply never crossed my mind that I needed to just say, wait a minute, folks, this is the time to stop and to see what God's got to say about this. What is God's input going to be in this? If nothing else, we will intercede on their behalf as they're being taken to the hospital and pray for them. Yeah. And so... That that was probably one of the greatest catalysts to get me really pushed out to do something because I knew that we had a lot of people in our church that had been in church for a long time. They knew the Bible better than I will ever know it, and yet we were doing nothing. So then, you know, how do you get answered prayers? You know, what is what is this thing about this affirmative answers that I talk about? Mm-hmm. 
And I think that we all pray. We all throw things up to the ceiling and hope something will stick. And every once in a while, something seems to kind of uh, glue itself up there. But most of the time, we throw it up to the ceiling and it comes back down and just plops on the floor. And that's our prayer. And so, you know, we say, well, why is this? And it's because we haven't found the will of God. We haven't connected with what God is saying through Mm -hmm. his word, through the moving of the Holy Spirit. We've not matured our relationship to the point where we understand the heart of God. God's not a vending machine where you go put in four quarters and you get something out. Um, there is, there's some effort that is going to be involved in this and developing our, our prayer life and developing our understanding where relationship with God takes work. Mm-hmm. And as we do that and we start understanding the heart of God, and particularly when you see that whenever our prayers are considerate, when they're peace-loving, when they're peace-making, whenever they're uh, in, in someone else's best interest, when we see those kinds of things in our prayer life, then we know that we're starting to get close to praying within the will of God. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that blessings are not going to flow on us. We should play, pray for blessings. Uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, um, God's people received strong blessings. And we, we do want blessings in our own lives, but not in a selfish sense. I call it more of a, an enlightened self-interest. When good things happen mm. to us, we can then spread those good things to other people. And so our prayer life starts to reflect the heart of God. And the heart of God is that his people will be cared for, that they will be uh, ministered to, their needs will be met, and in some instances, they will be healed. I firmly believe that God wills to heal people. Yeah. And it's whenever you see 175 references in, in the Bible to health and healing, that's not a small thing in God's eye. Absolutely. So that that's kind of a long statement about the affirmative uh, res, results of, of prayer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you may have references somewhere in the book, and I just, I'm not— drawing to it right now but uh one of my favorite passages of the gospels is john 15 and you get into john 15 verse 7 you know uh i'm just going to read it here so i don't misquote it but if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you and many people love that verse because it says whatever i want god's going to do it but the the qualifier is those first two statements of if you abide in me and to your point there of uh, you, you find yourself, well, it's not that I'm going to start praying for a pink Cadillac like Elvis had, and I'm going to just kind of fall out of the sky because I'm, <laughs> I'm with God, I'm connected with him. But it's the idea that I, I'm going to start tuning my life towards what the Lord is willing for this world. And as I'm doing that, my prayers become things that actually do fall in what God's going to do. So, of course, he's going to answer them. He's already going to do them anyway. I just get to pray about it now. Well, and that's true. You know, the prosperity gospel movement, you you get this name it, claim it type thing. But keep in mind, too, that that God didn't necessarily will for us to be poor either. No. I mean, we're going to have the poor with us always. But whenever we we receive blessings from God, our prosperity— isn't not, is necessarily the pink Cadillac or the bag full of money falling in our laps or winning the lottery down at the, the, you know, the service station or whatever. That prosperity is, is getting the fear out of our lives. The prosperity is the relationships that we have, the blessings that we have, yeah. the sufficiency in our life. And we don't, may not have just vast quantities of things, but we have sufficiency in our life. And, and those are all part of the prosperity that I think is, is the result of affirmative answers to our prayers. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I am. I'll never forget. I had when I was in college. I was going through a, a discipleship course, Master Life, the the highly intensive one, mm-hmm. and uh, I was I was fortunate to be able to do that with a group of believers that were yeah, most of them were at least a couple about twenty years older than me. Um, and I'll never forget one of the ladies in this group. Her name is Jennifer. She, um, her and her husband have a son. He's, he's the third, so they call him Trey. And he is a severely autistic child, uh, sweet as can be, just a precious child. He's, I think at this point, he's almost probably 16 now. Um, and I'll never forget, we were talking about the idea of prayer and master life that day. And and she doesn't very doesn't very often speak, is, is a very more reserved person. And she just starts crying, and she says, um, I, I know that God can heal Trey. I know that God is fully capable of that. And I know that one day he will in heaven. Um, and so she's like, I, I, it doesn't shake my prayers when I wake up tomorrow and Trey's not healed in the physical sense here on earth, but, it, but it's this deep abiding hope that she knows that, that prayers ultimately at the end of the day are always answered, uh, the way God wants to do them. And God will eventually heal Trey if, if it be here on earth, if he chooses that, or if he be in heaven one day. And, uh, Again, just reading that book of Imagine Heaven gets me thinking that, and John Piper talks about this, thing, I think, at some points too, but uh, a life full of suffering and misery on earth is minuscule in the light of eternity in heaven and God's presence. It is, and uh, our patience is is fairly thin. We Americans, as I said in the book, you know, we like 30-minute oil changes and everything solved in the time but a period between commercials, but... Uh, <laughs> God's timing is is infinitely better than ours. And is it a cop-out to say that he'll be healed in heaven? No, I don't think it is, because that is the hope that we have. Whenever we look in Romans 5, 3 through 5, and and we see that we go through adversity, God knows that we're going to have adversity, or he wouldn't put things like that in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so we deal with that adversity. Do we have a hope that things will be better? Yes. Do we have prayers that things will be better, that people will be healed? Yes. And are they sometimes healed? Yes. Um, but Beth Moore's got a real good workout that you know people can be healed um, from the fire, or they'll get their adversity they will, from the fire, uh, meaning that they won't have to go through it, or through the fire. They go through the fire, but they come out the other side, yeah. or in the fire, which means that they're ultimately consumed mm-hmm. and they're healed in heaven. Yeah. Um, in our human way, we certainly want to be our adversity to be kept from the fire. We don't want those things to happen to us. But whenever they do happen, whenever we have the anchor of prayer, when we have that foundation that God is there with us and that Jesus is walking through that, then we can walk through that valley of the shadow of death and we'll make it to the other side, whatever that end result would be. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we had a discussion the other day on, on the idea of answered prayer and healing specifically uh, in the office. And one of our ladies was just saying, you know, you know, why don't we see more of that physical, supernatural people getting up off their mats and walking type of healing? And, and you know, you you make a great point in here of saying, well, look, listen to or look at the gospel of org or GFA, um, and you'll see those type of things. And and yeah. I, I came to the conclusion of saying that um, anytime you look at healing in, in the Bible and what was it's really it's so much not about the actual physical healing. That, that, is a, that is a very real part of it. It's a very tangible thing. Um, but anytime Jesus did healing or the, even the apostles did healing afterwards, it, uh, the, the end goal is for people to want to come to a place of glorifying God. And, and I think, feeling fully back to your point, 
God could certainly start healing everybody he wants to. I would I would love to see my family members be healed of things like spina bifida and cancer and things of that nature. And I certainly would give God glory in those moments if he did that. But for whatever reason, in his sovereign will, he is he's decreed so far, I'm not going to do that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't, and it, it, like you said, it sounds like a cop-out answer. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it is. God's going to do what gets him the most glory. And he knows exactly what that is. Yeah, he does. Um, I can give you all kinds of examples uh, uh, that I've I've seen people healed. I've seen, I've not seen anybody grow a new leg. I've not mm-hmm. seen a paralyzed person uh, get out of their wheelchair. But mm-hmm. I've seen uh, many many people that had very serious illnesses that recovered, and it was not an in- instantaneous thing. Mm-hmm. Although in uh, in something just last week, um, we had a prayer for a man. It was having some just unusual blood pressure problems, and just the doctors had said, "I don't know, it's just you know, it's up or it's down. I don't know." Mm-hmm. We prayed for him, and uh, all of last week he was reporting back to me every day. Uh, BP's one twenty-eight over eighty, or BP's one twenty-six over eighty-two, and it was just really good. Mm-hmm. And so you see those types of things, and they do happen. Yeah. And so I know that God answers prayers, and God does will to heal, um, but we just have to accept that God's grace is sufficient unto us in our weakness. And whenever whenever Paul was talking about that, uh, you know, he wanted to get released from all the adversity he was facing about getting beat up and shipwrecked <laughs> and uh, stoned and that kind of stuff. But God's grace is sufficient to us, and we have to have that relationship. Yeah, yeah. My uh, one of the biggest impacts of, of my dad's testimony was uh, a time uh, when his cousin had gotten um in a very very uh major accident and uh had serious brain damage uh to the point that he was in the hospital brain dead Mm -hmm. and uh the doctors were trying to decide when to um take the the life support off uh and this man was um almost finished with uh school to be a doctor to be a medical doctor, and uh, uh, each day, Dad stayed with him at the hospital and and prayed for healing. And uh, believe it or not, he uh, his brain started to uh, function again, mm-hmm. and not only was he able to start walking and talking and communicating and and actually having cognition. That's amazing. And, and it is a God thing whenever that happens. We, we're sitting here talking about healing. One of the things that is not in the book, because even though I wrote the book, I'm still growing. I've come to believe that, that the power in the name of Jesus that we have, the authority that we've gained through what Jesus has given us. Jesus has given us this authority. He's told us that the things that he did, we will do those things and even greater things. And whenever we accept that and we start praying for people and we voice activate it, you know, creation was started by the spoken word. And when we talk about it in Genesis or in the book of Matthew and we see that it was the word, the spoken word that did it. Mm -hmm. And the word is sharper than the two-edged sword. And so we speak out loud uh, for the healing and we continue to do that, not in vain repetition, but we in, in persistence continue to pray and speak on a on a periodic or even daily basis for that healing. Uh, and I think it does have an effect, like what you're talking about with your dad there, going back and going back and continuing 
to work in that. It's, it's not just laying on the floor and begging God to do something. It is that persistent prayer because if you'll remember in Daniel, and it's covered there in the book, for 21 days he prayed, and mm-hmm. it took the angel 21 days to get to him. Satan is out there. He is working against us. The demons that Satan sends is working against us. And I know we don't spend a lot of time in our mainstream churches talking about that. But if you don't think that Satan's out there, look around you. You're not living in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) He's there. And so whenever it it sometimes takes time to defeat those satanic influences and demonic influences, God's will is there to do it. It's up to us to be persistent in our prayer and consistent in how we believe and see what God's going to do. And it's not a guarantee that it's always going to turn out our way, but it is what we are required to do by the word of God. That is uh, included in the Bible. Yeah, one of your um, um, big things that you say in the the seminar uh, uh, just really changed my perspective uh, was that if you aren't living a life understanding that the enemy is out there to do whatever he can do to stop you, then you aren't living a life properly. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd use that analogy. It's harsh. It's harsh to hear that if Satan's, not, if you're a Christian and Satan's not bothering you, it's because probably you're not bothering Satan. Mm-hmm. Or the other part of it could be that you are so spiritually mature that Satan has pretty much quit wasting his time on you. So it's either that you're really in good shape or you're in really bad shape spiritually. If yeah. Satan's not messing with you. Yeah, I mean, you look at all the champions of faith. You go from Paul to Martin Luther's and different people throughout history. Uh, Satan spent a lot of time trying to derail them. I, I think you're so true. I, I, I say it in a different way. I say, you know, Satan doesn't waste time with people he doesn't doesn't worry about. And and the opposite being true is that Satan will, if you are actively trying to pursue the Lord, trying to grow and trying to see his kingdom come, he's going to work against you. Um, and I, I know we've already kept you for about an hour. I don't want to be too taken of your time so I, well, I, we could sit here and talk about the book for so long and we probably wouldn't get all the way through it I tell you what um, one one thing I'd like to do in the in the conclusion of this podcast was if you would pray a, um, a model prayer for our audience sure sure well let's just pray yeah. Father God we come to you first acknowledging your goodness your glory your holiness all the things that about you Father are holy And you're just such a great God. You're a giving God, Father. And all blessings flow down from you. All good things that happen in our lives are because of you, Father. And we acknowledge those things and we give you thanks for those things. We appreciate the good things that that have happened to us. We look at our friends, our family, our belongings. And, Father, we know that, that you've wrapped each of those up just for us and given us those things as, as a gift to us. And, Father, they don't just happen by coincidence. And, and we acknowledge that, Father, that you are a good and loving Father. You are our Abba Father that you give to us. And, Father, as we, we stumble along in our earthly way, we, we say things that we shouldn't say or we think things that we shouldn't think, and then we fail to act when maybe we should. And, Father, those are sins, and we acknowledge those sins, and we lay them out for you one at a time. Father, you know our heart, and we call out those sins, and we just want them erased from us. And, Father, we know that you will remove those sins as far from us as the east is from the west. They'll never come back whenever we truly and sincerely uh, lay them out. And, Father, you have given us this forgiveness, and 
We thank you so much. You've given us your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, he walks with us and he does. Mm -hmm. He talks with us Mm -hmm. and he guides us and his yoke is easy. And whenever those adversities in life are there and they're pressing down upon us, if we'll just look up and look into the holy eyes of our our Lord Jesus, Mm -hmm. then we're going to know that our life will get better, that we will be able to get through the adversity and through the fire of the tortures that are there and those relationships that have gone south and whatever it might be, Father. Because we know that your son Jesus is there and he has saved us. And Father, as we we look at uh, going our separate ways, we just thank you so much that you're going to give us opportunities and open our hearts and our eyes to look for opportunities, to say a kind word to someone, to open a door for someone. Something as simple as just acknowledging that that person is there, that might be the spark that they need to let them continue so that that we can be the peacemakers in our families and peacemakers in our schools and our work and our churches and businesses, and that we can be considerate. And those things are all blessings from you, Father. So, Father, we come to you. We we want to live in a spirit of thanksgiving and forgiveness at all times. We give all of this to you, Father. We thank you for this ministry that Christian and Matt are working on. Father, I'll, I'll just pray the prayer of Jabez over that, that you'd bless it, that you'd bless it indeed, that you'll double those blessings, that their, their territories may be expanded, and by that their readership and listenership should be expanded, that, they, that your word will go out from this place and it'll bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And, Father, that... Uh, that your hand will be upon them and all that they do, that you'll guide them and direct them, and that you'll keep Satan out of this, that you'll keep Satan away from them and all demonic influences away from them. And in the name of Jesus, we expel those influences from all that they do. We give all of this to you, Father, and we come to you in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. 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 Well, um, Albert, thank you so much for uh, coming out here and speaking with us. I... I, uh, do really appreciate your book and and the uh, the seminar that you lead. It uh, I, I can't tell you how much uh, it um, brought me out of a um, a dark time in my life and uh, has me ha- has brought me to um, this phase of my life. I you know I just uh, appreciate what you do and uh, appreciate you coming out here. So thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed yeah. it and uh, for both of you. Yeah, buddy, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you guys for listening to The Culture Shock. Uh, Please be sure to leave us a review, like us on Facebook. (laughs) Well, obviously, I'm not a shy person. I talk a lot. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. (laughs)